Welcome to the Treasure Time podcast. I'm your host, Sophia, and in this week's episode, we have a special guest, Dr. Rachel Taylor. She's a renowned cognitive neuroscientist and a great friend of mine. Dr. Taylor specializes in studying brain development, and she works to create supportive environments for children and adults to reach their full potential. She has a particular passion for autism and making the world a kinder place for everyone. In today's conversation, Dr. Rachel shares some fascinating insights from her deep knowledge of children's brain development. We discuss what healthy brain development looks like for kids, what their ideal days should look like, if she was in charge, how she would do things, and how relationships and connections shape the developing mind. She also gives some practical tips for parents and caregivers to implement to nurture children's emotional growth. Dr. Rachel stresses the critical importance of play and creativity for children's well-being, which is obviously our favourite topic for this podcast. But in this episode, we also examine how wider societal influences and things like mobile phones and social media can impact not just kids, but also us as adults and what that then means for our children, because we are their role models. I found speaking with Dr. Rachel on this podcast incredibly enlightening. This episode will challenge you to think differently about parenting, technology, and about what children really need. Dr. Rachel is not afraid to say what she thinks and speak her mind and use strong messaging around what children actually need for healthy brain development and what's going to make them grow up to be the kind of adults that we want them to be. Dr. Rachel actually provided a lesson within Treasure Time, which is all around the neuroscience of play. So if you have access to Treasure Time already, you can watch that video module with Dr. Rachel. Or if you want to find out more about the neuroscience of play, you can join the Treasure Time course and you'll get to see Dr. Rachel's video module inside the members area. By the end of this episode, you'll walk away with research-backed advice on strengthening your bond with your child, reducing stress in your home, and promoting happiness and health for yourself and for your children. This all starts within the environment, within the four walls of our home a place where we have complete control of what happens. Let's dive into this compelling and inspiring discussion. I hope you enjoy it. So hi, Dr. Rachel. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sophia. Thanks for having me on. I know we're just going to have such a, an insightful conversation about children's brains, all things children's brains. Probably we'll talk a little bit about adult brains as well, I suppose. And I know that listeners are going to go away with lots of easy to implement tips, tools, tricks that we can use to optimize children's brain health. Shall we start with a little introduction to you for anyone that's not familiar with your work? Could you just tell us a bit about your experience, what you've done previously and what you're working on now? My official title is a cognitive neuroscientist because I focus on the way that the brain especially, but this whole central nervous system interacts with the environment and how that then manifests in behaviors. If we were to say I specialize in anything, it's atypicality. I have a particular passion for autism, which probably sounds a bit weird and dodgy, but um, the reason why I, I love autism so much is because they're one of the most vulnerable groups. And actually, if we made things better for people with autism, we'd all improve. And that just blows my mind completely in that we don't really create a, a gentle, kind, motivating, flourishing environment for anybody. But if we did that, then everyone would become the best version of themselves. My vision, my purpose, the work that I do now is, like I say, I want to create a better and kinder world one brain at a time. And that's just so that I don't get overwhelmed because if I didn't have that one brain at a time, 
I'd actually have an existential crisis every day. So I say one brain at a time. So I know that if I've helped one person to create their best life, then at least I'm, I'm on purpose. So I work with many different organizations and individuals to look at the neuroscience of different processes to help them to become the best version of themselves. But I have noticed, certainly, it, you know, it wasn't as noticeable pre-pandemic, but it really is now that children are extremely distressed. So I have been dedicating and, and working on quite a lot of different things that actually can support both children and parents to understand themselves better, create that better environment. So we actually can have flourishing children because from a purely selfish perspective, I sort of look at how children are struggling and think, oh my God, who's going to look after me when I'm old and frail? Standing firm. Who's going to be honest? I'm very selfish, I, I understand. But but also it's it's really distressing for me when I know how amazing the brain is and what you can do with it to see such depressed and distressed and unhappy and disconnected children because children literally should be the most connected, enthusiastic, curious, passionate people that we have on the planet. I, I already feel inspired just by listening to your mission and what you're trying to do. And we are great friends and have spent a lot of time talking to each other. The amount of knowledge that I have picked up from you, even from for myself particularly, how I operate within this world, I know that everybody needs what it is that you are speaking about. And I'd love to know what is the most important factor for children's brain development. If you were to distill it down into what is the most important thing, how they relate to other people, their relationships that they have, particularly people who are caregivers. And the reason why I say that's important is because we are born with the ability to feel the emotion joy. And we know that. And possibly even beforehand, because we know that from the expression of joy, we can map on a premature baby's face when they're near their primary caregiver. So they have this look of joy, which is amazing when you can see it on a 26-week-old fetus. And that's how early they've mapped it. So when you realize that we, can, we have the ability to feel joy in utero, that's a pretty important emotion because that's the first emotion to develop. And what underpins joy is the ability to connect. And when we combine that with the fact that our limbic system, so our emotional center of the brain, actually lays down in representations, we call them schemas, sort of the blueprints of how you relate to people before we are 18 months old. So before we actually know that we are separate to our primary caregiver, we have laid down, this is how you behave in life. This is how you relate to people. So from a human being perspective, being able to form connections is the most important thing that, that we know. We're hardwired for it before birth. And I bet everybody were expecting to say, oh, you need to drink water, <laughs> you need to eat good food. And that's really important. But the most important thing is basically, how do I connect? Who can I trust? Who's going to look after me? That's the most important things that children need to know. And how do we build that safe capacity for connection? Where does that come from? It comes from being present. And this is not just about mothers who give birth to children being able to do it. This is about what we can all do to support mothers of children to be able to do it. So it cannot just be, oh, look at that child. It's disconnected. It must be the mother's fault. It's what are we doing as a society to, to enable 
connection to be made. So how are we present? How are we showing love? How are we showing care? How are we showing attention? And the reason why it's so you know, impossible in this day and age is because there's so much distraction, so much. People zone out all the time. People, it's like, you know, little shiny thing. Oh, what's that? What's this? We don't put our attention anywhere. We don't focus. And what we need to do is sit back and think, how do I want this child to grow? Do I want this child to grow thinking it's okay to ignore people because there's something shiny and interesting on my smartphone? Is it okay not to attend to somebody's needs because I'm distracted by something on Netflix? Is it okay for me to ignore distress because, you know what, I've had a really busy day? And all of these things, we're actually, if you look at the influences in our environment, and this is a huge thing, we're actually being influenced to disconnect. And when somebody is distressed by that disconnect, we're being influenced to call that disease or illness or condition. And it's not, it's distress. It's, I have a need, I can't fix it myself. I need somebody else to do it for me. And you've ignored me, so that needs not being met. And I've not learned how to deal with that need because I'm a child. What am I going to do? I feel pain and social pain is in a similar place in the brain to physical pain. We get the same kind of reaction. And sometimes even more so because if we have an unmet need, we get a massive stress reaction because it's like, I'm not being looked after. My tribe is not looking after me. How am I going to survive? It literally is a life and death situation. So we can stop all that by just being present and just loving people which is like the most simple yet most complex structure that we need to do, really. And so why is it that loving people is so complex? First of all, we have a very strong messaging that's going on, like independence is good. Independence isn't good. From a neuroscientific perspective, it's so not good. Don't listen to Beyonce. Don't listen to any of these songs. It's like, I'm independent. I'm okay by myself. No, you're not. We are pack animals as a species there's no one on earth who is more connected and needs connection more than human beings and that's not to say we need to be codependent because that's the other end of the tree what we need to do is start to realize that nobody is successful and nobody achieves their best potential by being by themselves we need that support and the good back office team we won't expect anybody to do anything by themselves you cannot be everything to everyone all the time we need like a really good community a really good family structure and it can be difficult to have like the biological family structure that that you need or, or you desire and as an adult there's a whole world of pain around that you know adverse childhood experiences but we have to take responsibility as an adult and think do I want for my children or children around me to have my experience when I wasn't supported because am I the best version of myself through not having that support? Or actually, do I want those children or other children to have their own problems and not have my problems and give them that support? So see who they can be when they've been supported and trust people, know that their needs are being met from a very early age. And I think if we did that, then the world would look a lot better. You know, we need to think about those influences and who does it serve for that particular message? Who does it serve that you can do everything by yourself? You can be independent. You don't need to rely on anyone. Who does that message serve? Because it certainly doesn't serve the ordinary human being. So who does it serve? 
people who don't want to have the collective power of human beings who might think my signs of success are not like, I don't need the big house. I don't need the fancy car. I don't need all the money in my pocket. My signs of success actually are sitting around a campfire and telling stories and knowing how many people have loved me and I love back. We've completely moved away from this is how people should be. And I'm going to share one of my, and it really, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's a guilty punishment. Like when people say to me, have you seen, and you can insert any of the uh, reality TV shows in that. And I look and I see these so-called experts and it really gets me going. So really, really, because these experts, expert in what? Destroying people. Are you an expert in actually allowing bad behavior to go unpunished? You're actually rewarding people for treating other people like they're not even human. And that is going out. And this is how teenagers, young people, 20s think that people are treated. And look, they're actually on TV. They're famous. And this is how they behave. And it's so all this is going on. And it's no wonder people don't know what it means to be human. No wonder we have this such disconnect. No wonder children are struggling. Definitely. And I think that from what I see, people look to the media, to the government for regulation or guidelines on actually how we should be doing this because the world is changing so fast at such a pace that we've never seen before. And we don't get guidelines on play or what guidelines do you think in your in your expertise that we should be working to as a society and as parents and as families what guidelines and boundaries need to be in place for our children to develop in healthy ways everybody needs to play it's it's one of the saddest stories ever told i don't know why i just laughed when i said saddest we share many mechanisms and functions in our brain around connectivity and play and joy that our rodent cousins also use. And I'm not a fan of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm not a fan because when you provide rats and rat babies with shelter, with food, with warmth, with water, with everything they need supposedly to survive, if they're deprived of touch and play, they very quickly die. They get depressed and die. Now, we have a longer lifespan than rats and mice. So it takes us a bit longer, but you can see that if a child doesn't play, if a child's not touched, you can actually see how detached and withdrawn and their behavior changes. You can see it from a very young age. And I I don't see how play isn't prioritized, even for sort of secondary school children, because they're the most detached and deprived of touch and attention of all children when you see them in the streets. Look, the majority have no spark of life in their eyes. You know, like dead behind the eyes. That's what they look like to me. Uh, you know, the guidelines would be almost have you eaten three times a day, which most children don't do now either because of cost implications. How much play have you had? How much touch? I prescribe hugs to people who have got oxytocin deficits. If nobody knows what oxytocin is, or they've only ever heard of oxytocin in terms of starting labor, you know. Yeah, which, which, you know, these artificial oxytocin to do that. Oxytocin is a bonding hormone and it's more than that. It's like in-group, out-group. So if you have oxytocin, you feel like you belong. You feel bonded to the group that you're in, no matter what it is. And I think it's on a positive feedback loop as well. So if we don't feel like we belong, 
we're not going to get any oxytocin and it's a very human neurotransmitter hormone. So we, we have to force people to touch and to eye gaze and to be part of something to generate oxytosis. You might not want to do this, but I'm going to make you do it. On this occasion, you have to make people do it so they generate that oxytocin so they, they get more in the body and then they feel more human again. So I'd want those kind of guidelines. And I'd also, we need to prioritize that over recall. Like what children need, like what are they actually learning? They are learning how to take a test. It, it staggers me. I, I had a, a heated discussion with the deputy head of, of one of my children's school because they would say, oh, it's all about working memory. And I went, as a neuroscientist, let me tell you, your policy of only allowing children to have half an hour for lunch is actually going against wanting to develop a, a good working memory because they've got no time to decompress. They've got no time to consolidate their learning in the morning. They won't even remember what they've done in the morning. And actually, you shouldn't be wanting to increase working memory because the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until after 25. And, I'm, and then I'm thinking, who the hell is advising schools and the Department of Education? That isn't actually an achievable thing. Why are we not allowing them to be curious and explore and develop rather than actually thinking, oh, I'm not good enough because I can't remember. So some days you might learn more than others. If children are hungry, they're not going to remember anything at all because the brain will not have enough energy for the working memory to work properly. So there's all these things that are going on. I'm just like, this is madness. What are you all trying to achieve here? Who is advising this nonsense? Because actually the children are suffering and then you're trying to say they've got a mental health condition and they've not, they're just suffering and distressed. They need a hug and they need a decent meal and they need to play. That's what these children need. Anyway, but I'm not in charge, Sophie, yes, sadly. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> so what, what does an ideal day for a child look like for healthy brain development? If you have an adolescent, it's a different structure of the day. The ideal day for a child will be that they get up in a timely manner and they have a decent breakfast. Now, decent breakfasts don't need to cost a lot of money, but let me tell you, a can of Red Bull <laughs> is not a decent breakfast. Children should not be having caffeine at all. I just want to get that out there, but it's really bad for them. So it needs to start with a breakfast. It doesn't need to cost a lot of money. You know, you want something which you can get them relatively cheaply. Cheese seeds, flax seeds, spoonful, hidden in some cereal, hidden in porridge, hidden in something. That's going to give the brain a, a burst of energy. And I can hear like parents saying, but my children won't eat chia seeds, hide them. So they need to have a good breakfast. And they need to actually be able to think about what's happening in the day ahead. Now, when children go to school, it is quite structured. Adolescents should be starting school probably about 11 o'clock in the morning, but that's never going to happen, is it? Because how does that fit in with adults? How does that fit in with the world of work? Because that's why schools are there. So adults, grown-ups can go to work. That's why schools came into fruition. Because fitting, you know, let's have a mass holding of children so that their parents can go and oil the wheels of the economy. So adolescents should be starting at 11, but they're not going to. And we need to be engaging and asking questions that are actually making children think. Now, I know that teachers are going to think that they do that, but I can tell you now you don't. You don't use scaffolding. You don't put any belief into the children's ability. You don't let them think. And something else that grown-ups are really scared to do is allow their child to be bored. The brain needs to be bored 
because from boredom comes creativity. If the brain isn't bored, you're going to find it really difficult to be creative. So you have to teach the brain how to deal with being bored. And I was out having lunch the other day with my partner and I looked at, and there was a, a grandma showing a baby something on a smartphone. The baby looks about 10 months old. It brings tears to my eyes. And my partner goes, not your baby, not your problem. But it is my problem <laughs> because I'm a neuroscientist and I know what damage it does. And it's, these people are not going to take kindly to me approaching and say, let me tell you the damage you're doing to your child. But maybe if they hear me on this podcast, they might actually think, what damage am I doing to my child by constantly distracting by a smartphone that emits blue light and actually isn't helping my child's brain develop? So please, parents, don't let the child look at your phone. Don't let your child have a phone. That is so damaging to their brain development. So we want children to be bored. We want them to have a, a decent meal that actually is for fun. But we need them to spend time with their peers. Have we forgot that children need socialization? Like for themselves to have a chat, to chew over what's going on in their life, to have their privacy and actually just put their world to right. I think we forgot that. We want to fill the life with entertainment activities. Does it, you know, who does that profit? Does it make you feel you're a better parent because they're going to about five or six different activities? Actually, you're overloading your child's nervous system by doing that. So allow them to socialize, just be children. Afternoon is not great for anybody. We should be having a little rest. I remember when I went to school, when I was younger, we used to have like, you know, might be a video, might listen to songs in the afternoon. It wasn't full on learning. They actually were a lot more gentle and kinder and knowledgeable about the impact on a human being if you did full on learning. So we did nice things or we might go out for a nature walk or something like that. I look back and think, God, was I in a different dimension when I was doing that? And it didn't do me any, any harm. You know, I have a PhD. It didn't stump my learning, <laughs> you know, by going for a nature walk or playing music. It actually did me good. So we have to realize that just because an expert in the Department of Education or equally schools, because no one takes responsibility for this either. Schools say it's a Department of Education policy. And the Department of Education says schools have their autonomy. They can decide what they want to do. So nobody actually takes responsibility over why they do what they do. So I can only assume they've, they've watched a PowerPoint and thought, oh, that's a good idea, without even thinking of the implications. So we need to have afternoons which are more gentle for children. There needs to be activity. There needs to be play. But there needs to be stuff that actually helps them to think, who do they want to be? And I don't mean I want to be a fireman or I want to be a policeman or I want to be an astronaut. I want to be kind. I want to be caring. I want to be ambitious. Like looking at values-based stuff, like who do you want to be? What, do you, what values do you want to emulate? And there is no good, there is no bad. It's what are you drawn to? That's what we should do, be doing with children. And then when they come home, they should feel safe and secure. They should feel listened to. We should be interested in how their day has gone. And they should be able to have some nutrition, whatever that may be. And again, I know that things are expensive for people. You know, my eldest child, who's now 24, laughs because she says, do you remember when you were obsessed with soups, mummy? <laughs> do you remember when you had that soup obsession? And I was like, didn't really have a soup obsession, but that was the cheapest way I could think of to get you the vitamins and minerals that you needed. So it wasn't exactly, it wasn't like a phase I went through. 
it was something I had to do because I didn't have much money at the time. How, how we laugh about the soup days. And we have to do that. And then don't let your children be on devices. Don't. Don't allow them to zone out. Have a really good bedtime routine. Get them calm. Talk to them. Read them stories. Honestly, mobile phones need to come with a health warning. This is bad for everybody's health, but even worse for children. That blue light, just the distraction. And that's not even to talk about the emotional impact of social media. What it needs to say, a bit like tobacco says, it actually says, and this is empirical evidence, just by being in the same room as a smartphone, just by being in the same room, you don't even need to be looking at it. It reduces your cognitive ability just by being in the same room. And that blows my mind. So I often offload my phone. It's like a bit of, it's like a, bit of a running joke. It's like, why can't I get in touch with you? Because I just put my phone in a drawer and I forget about it. I, I would rather people contact me other ways. So yeah, they need to come with a health warning. So have a nice bedtime routine and then start the day much as we described earlier. That sounds like a lovely day. That's yeah, if I was in charge, that'd be my day. <laughs> but I'm not. But it's the sort of day that we all need as well, right? The, being mindful of our routines, the getting enough sunlight, getting enough nutrition, working to our rhythms rather than against them. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely it. And, and the thing is, is I, I meet so much resistance to using the light. But, and it's, oh, yeah, but we can't do that. But you can. What you have to realize, what you're struggling with in getting enough light, having enough sleep, what you're struggling with is because your brain is so used to in a toxic environment that it actually feels impossible for you to get out of that comfort zone. Because even if it's bad for you, if it's familiar to the brain, the brain wants you to do it because it can predict the outcome. And the brain doesn't care if you're sick, if you're unwell, if you're tired, fatigued, unhappy. The brain doesn't care. Its job is to keep you alive. And if you are alive, even albeit in a bad state, the brain is quite happy with that. So what you're really saying when you're saying, oh, but nobody does that. It's so difficult. Dr. Rachel, you're just like, you're such a renegade. Nobody lives like that anymore. And it's because you've been nudged down a pathway, which is bad for you. And again, think about who is it good for if you're sick? Who is it good for if you're apathetic? Who is it good for if you can't be bothered to do anything with your life? It's not good for you, but who is it good for? Why would that be the environment which we are all living in? So we're talking about the wider influence environment and how it comes into our own homes and our daily lives and our phones and our screens and everything. What can we do to protect or create the right environment within the, the four walls of our home, especially with children? I think the first thing is there's no blame or no shame here. This is not, oh, you're a bad person. This is how you're being influenced. And if you're not aware of that, then your limbic system is. So you will be behaving like this because it is the social norm. That's how we've got. So don't blame or no shame. It's just like that's what's happening. And then decide what do you want to happen? So you might be like, well, do you know what? I'm really happy with the status quo. That's great. Take responsibility for it. As long as you're owning it and saying, yeah, I'm living like this and it's affecting my children and I don't care, then go for it. If you do and you want to make changes, what you need to do is start noticing your influences and switching off. And for most people, you will have a phone addiction. That's what it does to you. 
you get addicted to it. You get addicted to the, the fast pace of it. The dopamine hits, if you are on social media, you will get, so you have to wean yourself off it. And then you have to, I, I say to people, like, the, the best thing you can do is instill a good bedtime routine. You need to be off a phone at least two hours before you go to bed. So that sort of coincides for a lot of people. Like you should do. Put it away around about six, half six. Dedicate yourself to getting your children into a bedtime routine and then relax and get yourself off to bed. Then everything's going to start working a bit better. So I understand completely the influences. And do you know what? I wish that there was a magic pill. And tell, you know, I'm going to say to all your listeners, if there ever is, I'm going to come back on Sophia's podcast and say, guess what? There's a magic pill. Let's tell everybody about it. But for now, you are your magic pill. So you have to do things to make a difference in your environment and just tell your children that how other people are living is not healthy. It's not normal. Most people live in a really abnormal way to cope with an abnormal environment. And, th and that's what we need to sort of get across to people. And there's this part as well where I'm thinking, with, especially with devices and with children, around being left out. All my friends have one, it being the norm and also it being quite hard to say no to children at times because you don't want them to be the odd one out. So how do parents yeah. deal with that? They need to tell the children that they need to come with a health warning. My children don't have them and I am the only parent. And I'm like, isn't it interesting? I'm an expert in the brain and I say it's bad for the brain and I don't let my children have them. And everybody else who isn't think it's okay. And let's see, which children are being affected by bullying, lack of sleep, distraction. I look at certain children and how they are allowed to do certain things. And no, no wonder there's an inability to focus. So you have to be strong. It's like, would you take your child to a crack den? Would you take your child to a casino? Would you take your child to anything that actually has addictive qualities? Presumably, no. Treat the phone as something similar. Because the evidence is out there. You know, you can use technology for focused, targeted learning. But that's it. They shouldn't be on a screen eight hours a day. They shouldn't be on a phone. They shouldn't be allowed to have free reign. There's no such thing as internet safety. It should be renamed as internet risk management because that's what you're doing. You're managing risk. We should remove safety completely out of it. There's no way a child can be safe online. No way, no how. So why a parent would want to give a child access to that notwithstanding the damage it does to the brain I you know I'm going to reiterate it again because this is pretty shocking to me just being in the same room as one reduces cognitive ability that to me is the most shocking bit of evidence that you would need as a parent why would you want to reduce your child's cognitive ability you might not be bothered about yours but why would you want to stunt your child's ability to think and function just say no so let's just talk quickly about brain plasticity and anyone who's listening to us who's thinking, okay, maybe my child has been in a toxic environment, I'm in a toxic environment. What about the brain's ability to change? Oh, this is the most marvelous thing. The brain can change until the day we die. And there's some evidence to suggest that after we die, it can also have plasticity. It can also change. So our brain is formed of plasticity about experiences, what we do on a daily basis. So the more we open ourselves to difference, doing different things, experiencing different things, the more that our brain is plastic and it takes about eight weeks to create a new neural pathway, which is why change is so difficult, but it, it, you can be different. It is difficult, but you can do it. 
this is it's like you have to want to do it. So surround yourself with examples, imagery and environment, which is supporting you to be who you want to be rather than an environment which is actually nudging you into a pathway which is making you unwell. But neuroplasticity is one of my favorite things in, in that you, you can teach any dog new tricks at any time. And, that, you know, and dog is human being in this case. So yeah, teach any human being any tricks in any time. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Rachel. I know that it's always insightful to speak to you. And I know that listeners will be taking away lots of good nuggets of knowledge here and things they can implement. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, they can find me on Substack, Dr. Rachel Taylor on Substack, or find me on drrachelltaylor.co.uk. I don't do any other social media because I am an authentic neuroscientist. I do what I say. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Rachel. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Sophia. Thanks for having me on. And that's it for today's podcast. I hope you really enjoyed the conversation and found it enlightening and inspiring too. If you're a parent looking to create stronger connections and nurture your child's well-being, I've got something special for you. I want to introduce you to Treasure Time, an innovative digital play course designed to teach emotional development through child-led play, my favourite thing. Imagine strengthening your relationship with your child, reducing stress and fostering a happy, healthy family dynamic all through the magic of play. Treasure Time offers bite-sized, fun instructional videos, engaging play dates and evidence-based techniques to improve communication with your child. By taking part in Treasure Time, you'll get six play dates to build that strong relationship with your child. You'll not only become a black belt play ninja, but you'll also gain valuable skills to enhance your child's emotional literacy and your own confidence in setting boundaries, being playful and finding new ways to communicate with your child. Having a strong relationship with your child has so many positive effects, including reducing power struggles, fewer challenges in getting your child to listen to you or to cooperate with what you want, fewer emotional outbursts, and when they do happen, you have more skills to help regulate yourself and your child. And the best benefit of all is a stronger, deeper connection with your child that will last throughout their lifetime. It's a transformative journey that lots of parents have already experienced. So if you're ready to embark on this exciting adventure with Treasure Time, just head over to the website today, treasuretime.co.uk. Use the code podcast for an extra 10% off the price and you'll get access to the full course today. It's a small investment for a lifetime of benefits. It's your guide to raising an emotionally intelligent child and it's just one click away. Remember, this is not just about play, it's about creating lasting connections and helping your child to grow up happy. Visit treasuretime.co.uk and start your playful journey today. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep playing, keep connecting and keep making those precious moments count. If you enjoyed this episode of the Treasure Time podcast, please head over to Apple and leave us a five-star review and a comment so that we can reach more parents who are interested in learning about the power of play. See you next time.